want to share a story. I was, I was a school teacher for a long time uh, before God called me to be a youth minister. Um, I did two years of ninth grade. I taught an at-risk class. I taught them all subjects. Um, funding ended, and they put me in an eighth-grade U.S. history class. And I thought, Lord, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Um, I remember eighth grade, and I don't want to go back. <laughs> but lo and behold, God knew what he was doing, right? And I loved it so much, I didn't even continue with the plans that I'd had for college. You know, I just, I mean, this, this is fantastic. I'm going to do this until I retire, right? Until I get tired of listening to junior hires. Well, then a little bit later, God had a different plan. About 12 years after that, he says, I, I got another plan for you. But anyway... The point of all that is a school teacher. I'm sitting in a teacher's lounge. It's after school. It's a teacher's meeting. It's a staff meeting. Now, some of you are teachers. This is a very, very exciting part of your month, the, the monthly staff meeting. And so I was sitting in the back of the room, and I was not making any trouble at all. I was not causing any trouble. I was not telling jokes. I was just sitting there minding my own business. Somebody said something funny next to me, and I, I laughed. I mean, it, it wasn't a dirty joke, not, you know. And there was another, there, there was a bunch of Christians. We all kind of knew each other. And one Christian teacher turned to me, and she said, and you're a Christian, and she, because everybody got mad because we were laughing at the back of the room, and you're a Christian, you should know better. I remember going, did I sin when I, I, I really had trouble with what, what, what exactly did I do wrong that now this other Christian is all mad at me because I'm not being a good Christian, right? And so our question for this whole series is, does character matter? And it seems to me the question depends on who's asking the question, right? Um, to fellow believers, um, apparently, according to this lady, and this is my experience, maybe it's your experience, um, you only have to be as good as they are, <laughs> right? If you meet another believer, you'll start talking, well, what do you believe about this, you know? And, and you'll pretty soon, you'll, you'll figure out what the pecking order is. Either they're holier than you or you're a saint and they're not. Um, but, 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 but for believers, this is a really good thing if you're here today. You only have to be as good as the person sitting next to you. Okay, this isn't the gospel presentation, by the way. This, hold on. We'll, okay. Right? You only have to live up to their standards. I know it's true. It's sad, but it's true. As long as you believe what they believe, which is the right things, right? It, they'll overlook all your horrendous behavior, right, to a certain extent, as long as you believe what, what they want you to believe um, and you don't pass, surpass their standards because then you become a holy roly and then nobody likes you. Um, now, for believers, it's a totally different situation, totally different set of expectations for, excuse me, unbelievers, right? So for believers, we only got to be as good as they are, but for unbelievers, they have high standards, right? And I recognize that they don't know Jesus very well. They don't know what Jesus did or said very well, because I hear crazy things, but to them, <laughs> to unbelievers, we have to be as good as Jesus was, Right? To unbelievers, we only got to be as good as the person next to us. But to unbelievers, we got to be better than Jesus. Now, and, and I know it's not fair, and I know you're going to say, well, that's not fair. Well, it really doesn't matter um, because this is the truth of, of the matter. Um, to believers, you have to be as good as Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, non-believers expect you to act like Jesus. Right? What Jesus cared for and what Jesus valued, they expect you to care for and value the same thing. And if you vary just a little bit from what they understand that he said or did, you're not a Christian. You're not a follower. You are a hypocrite. You're a fake. I mean, the list just goes on and on. They'll have nothing to do with you unless you are a mirror image of Jesus. No wonder nobody likes us. 
Um, and the fact of the matter is, they will judge your likeness to Jesus mostly not by how much we love each other. They're going to judge our likeness to Jesus by how we treat those outside the faith, how we treat them. That, that's, that's the kicker. That, that's the difficult part. Again, not by how friendly we are to each other or how much we love each other, right? Because that's expected, right? That's why they don't want to come in the doors. It's like, oh, they love each other. Look how they love each other. But will they love me? And will they love my mess? Right? You know, Jesus said they will know you by the love you have for one another. Yeah, they all love each other. But a lot of people outside those doors, they think, but they, there's no way they'll love me. There's no way because they're all good people inside there. <laughs> raise your hand if they're wrong. No, don't raise your hand. No, stop, 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 stop. Whew. That's called entrapment, by the way. Will they know and love me and my mess? And we all know their apprehension, right, is, is well-founded. As we discovered last week, hit that next slide there. Um, Christians are like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get when you bite into one. <laughs> Some of them are pure, like a Hershey bar. You see is what you get, right? They call themselves Jesus followers, and by golly, they are a Jesus follower. Others, they look good on the outside. You bite into it, and it's got coconut or something gross in it. They think, oh, Christians, I don't want to have anything to do with Christians again. But here's where we landed last week. God's like a Hershey bar. (laughs) Love through and through, right? Through and through. You can chop God up and little pieces, all love. It's all love. And according to the Apostle John, we too can be pure through and through, right? And he said this, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us life from his life. He has filled us with his spirit. So we too can be pure. Even those nominally, barely committed to Jesus, they, they kind of see, they recognize, the whole world quickly recognizes. Again, they don't have to even understand anything about us, but they quickly see through us I don't know if that's the right way to say, but but they can see what happens when we aren't pure love through and through. This is Steve Jobs, and he is, again, not representing the Christian community. If you read about his beliefs, they're kind of all over the map. I'm just saying this is a man kind of on the outside looking at us, and he's saying something I think we need to listen to, right? He says this, the juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus saw it, right? The vitality or the life or our purpose just kind of gets deflated when we're all about the belief and not about, and this is the view of an outsider, right? But again, he's not an expert, but I think we need to listen. Here's what he's saying. Church says you give up your leverage in culture when you focus on anything but love. And we, the church, need to just repeat this to ourselves constantly over and over and over and over and over again. We lose our leverage in the culture if we focus on anything but love. We can focus on politics. We can focus on a thousand other things, and we lose. We go backwards. Faith goes backwards when we focus on anything other than love. We closed with this thought last week. Um, Loving each other is incredible proof. It's incredible leverage how we love each other. And really, Jesus Christ pulled together 12 disciples as kind of the first object lesson. And, and again, I've shared this last week as we were closing out. You have, um, you have uh, uh, Simon, who's, who's a zealot, right? They're kind of into killing any Roman soldiers that they can find who's not 
protecting himself. They were, some of them were assassins, and they, would, they were particularly upset with collaborators who collaborated with Rome. So you got Simon sitting around the table, and just down, maybe there's a couple people in between them. Maybe it's John. I don't know. But then you got, you got Matthew, who's a collaborator with Rome. So you got these two people having a meal together. One of them is sworn to kill the other one, and yet they loved each other. All of Jerusalem expected them to kill each other. But then all of Jerusalem watched them love each other, and that was incredible leverage for the message of Christ. Anything else that they would have done, they could have gotten caught up in all of the politics of the day. Like, Jesus, guys, focus on love. Focus on love. Focus on love. But we have to understand our desire to understand more than we desire to be right. <laughs> Didn't say that right. We have to want to be understood. Excuse me, we need to understand people more than we need to convince people. There's, there's really what I wanted to say. Um, and there's a reason for this. Again, we, we, we love apologetics. I love apologetics. I love the proofs and all of that. I know one of our people here in our congregation was telling me they ran into somebody and they kind of got into it and they could see that everything that this person was saying, I mean, they could think of everything that they could have said and, and I was so happy. And he said, I didn't say a thing. I just, yep, yep. It's like, yes, this person gets it. They get it. Listen, we're not called to be right. We're called to be holy. That's what we need to remember more than anything else. We're not called to win all the arguments. We're called to be holy as we argue. And that's difficult because a lot of people get really worked up about whatever it is that they uh, get worked up about. And this is the, the beginning of the Lenten season. I, I know we're a Protestant church. We don't lean too heavily into that, but I know a lot of people do. Uh, Ash Wednesday starts it. Maudie Thursday ends it. Um, and during this 40 days, not counting Sunday, I just wanted to let you know because you don't fast on Sunday. Sunday's always a feast day. Just thought I'd throw that out. So we got these 40 days, and, and, and in the tradition during the Lenten season, you're, you're preparing. You're preparing your heart. You're preparing your soul. You're, you're kind of um, aiming for holiness, right? Because we're called to be holy. And, and, and the, the Christian during the Lenten season is kind of asked to look at their lives and what could they fast from? And again, if you're fasting from something that you love because it's harmful to you, you're not really doing it right. Like I know a lot of people like to diet or they like to do something that they would really like to not do anyway. That's not the point. <laughs> the point of fasting, to the Lenten season, is to pull something from your life that has maybe taken on a life of its own and, and, and you're really literally asking to switch out something that, that you've learned to live on but you don't need to live on it. And maybe you're beginning to lean into it so much that it's beginning to maybe be a problem with your faith. So in the Lenten season, we're, we're, we're encouraged and we're challenged to find that something and ditch it out. Not just ditch it out and live a hole, leave a hole in our life. The idea is that we would leverage this choice that we make. Leverage it for love. And so my challenge to you this morning, we're going to move into a time of prayer now. And my challenge to you is, as, as you're thinking about this, what, what, is it, what is God calling you to maybe fast from in your life? And, and I think even more important is, is what will you replace it with? Because you don't just get to take a nap during the time that you normally would have done whatever it is that you're going to fast from, right? That's not the idea. But what will you replace it with? What can you, you know, your life was slowly, focus was going off God and now he's saying, hey, make a switch in your life, and I want you to turn back t 
toward me because I've called you to be holy. And don't be confused. That's not perfect. It means complete and mature. Peter tells us that God is holy. Even as God is holy, we are holy. He's not saying that we're God, but God is holy because he's complete in who he is. And with his spirit, we too can be complete in who we were designed to be. Complete, mature believers. Holy, set apart, different from everything else. So I just want to, again, enter a time of prayer now. Altars are open. But I want to challenge you. What is it in your life maybe that has taken on a life of its own and you maybe, maybe you know, it doesn't have to be for the Lenten season. It could just be, you know what, this is getting in my way and I need to stop. And it doesn't even have to be bad in and of itself, but it's taken away from something that could be powerful, like taking away something good for something great. So if you bow your heads, Father, as we gather here, we, we call on you. We, we need healing. Uh, when we walk into this place, Lord, we've been in the world, um, and the world has affected us. There's, there's no way we can be in the world and not be affected by it. We hear things, we see things, we feel things. Um, and Lord, we, we come to this place to, be, to heal and to be refilled up by the power of your spirit so that we can go back into that world that has a different set of standards. And Father, this morning we're, we're, we want to explore how do we interface as disciples of your son, how do we talk to and how do we get along with people who have made a very, very conscious decision not to be a disciple of your son? How do we relate to them, Father? And you, you gave us clear answers in your word. Um, but Father, this morning, again, what is it in our lives that you are calling us to look at, to search out the house and to find that leaven, um, that, that thing that, that, that keeps leading you astray, um, that we would cleanse our, our, our houses of these things for this Lenten season. Maybe even at the end of these 40 days, um, that maybe a habit could have been formed, a brand new habit, a, a brand new Christian virtue uh, that will leverage love. So, Father, as we, we come to you this morning, some of us need a lot of repentance, some of us need power, some of us just need your presence. So, Father, be what people need you to be. Father, you ask throughout your word, what can I do for you? And if you're hearing my voice, you can respond to God, this is what I need from you today, Father. This is what I need. Everything else are wants, but this one's, this one's stopping me in my tracks. Father, help me on this one thing. <laughs> Maybe it's a whole bunch of stuff. But Father, in your word, you promise us that you can provide healing. You can provide a peace that surpasses all understanding. The whole rest of the world will look at us and they will not be able to understand why we can have such peace in the face of death, of hurt and pain and rejection. And yet our hope never fades. It shines forth. Father, give us that life. Fill us with your spirit so that we shine. 
We shine like a, a, a lampstand, like a, like a city on a hill, that we, we make life taste good like, like salt. Father, help us bring heaven to earth. You brought heaven to earth, but there's a lot of people on this earth that haven't recognized that fact. Father, you've put that on us. You called us to go and cause people to become followers of your son. And Lord, that's our, our mission. As the Richland Church of Nazarene, that we are going to go out and we are going to cause people to become followers, disciples. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We need your power. We need your courage. We need your knowledge, wisdom, timing. But your word, your word also shows me not that you need us, but that you chose to work through us. You honored us by calling us to march alongside you. And so, Lord, what an honor. Help us to live up to that honor. Help us to never forget that our lives purchased at a great price for that specific honor to walk beside you and help redeem a lost world. Thank you, Father. Thank you for everything that you're doing in the lives of this congregation, both individually and as a body, that we continue to move forward in reaching people that don't know your son. Maybe they've decided they don't want to meet your son, but Lord, with love, we can win them over. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Hey, if you're new with us, this is the third Sunday in a message series called Does Character Even Count? Um, really what we've been looking at is that tension between uh, what Paul said that we're saved um, by grace through faith and what James said is that a, a faith without works is dead. So, so where's, where can we find some, some happy middle ground there, that, that, that tension between um, faith and works? And here's what we know. Here's what we've concluded so far in kind of answering this question. Um, the power of our witness lies not in what we believe, but in what we do. And we extravagantly and sacrificially love people. Um, but here's the problem, and then it's just kind of the way it is, and we, we, we need to kind of work around this kind of thing. Um, the driving question in almost any conversation you have with anybody is not, what are you doing about this? It's, what do you believe about this, right? You have any kind of conversation about politics or social issues or human sexuality or, or any of the big social issues, make it, it's not, what are you doing about Pollution, poverty, what, what do you believe to be the solution? What do you think? It's not what you're doing, it's what do you, what do you believe? And that kind of stops all action because we all know we're not going to agree on anything. So we end up talking each other to death, and by the end of the day, we feel like we've done something. <laughs> you have. You argued with somebody all day long, but you really didn't do anything constructive. Yeah, you, you were busy all day, no doubt about that. Which brings us to God's word today. And what might Jesus and his apostle Paul have to say to disciples today? Um, how do we respond to people who not only don't believe like we believe, but they won't do the things that we think are important and they're doing things that we look and go, ah. right? Well, how, how, do we, how do we interface with, with that? How do we stop by going, ah, right? <laughs> we Christians are, are really good at, at doing that. 
So deciding how do you respond to a disciple who has decided, or excuse me, a person who has decided not to be a disciple, not to believe or do as Jesus commanded. And again, if you're a Jesus person, you're not a Jesus person. If you're not a religious person, if you're here, you don't want to be here. I'm sorry, you're here. Um, you got dragged out here. Um, say, say thank you to the person who dragged you out here. Um, but you're going to love what I'm about to say, right? If you don't like church and if you don't like church people and you're sitting here in church, you're going to go, yes, try not to say amen because that would give you away and that, you know, you're trying not to do that. But you will be tempted to say amen, preach it, brother, right? And so don't do that. Just, just don't do that. Um, but you're going to love a few of the things that I'm going to say because you're going to, that's why I left the church, that's why my parents left the church. That's why I don't go to church anymore. That's exactly, I've been trying to tell you, that's why. So a part of what I want to say this morning is going to sting just a little bit, um, but we're here to be healed, so it's all good, right? So uh, we need to go back to Jesus' words right before he returns to the Father to kind of set the stage for what Paul is going to say. And he's going to have this big old long discussion. He's actually going to write a letter. And in the midst of that letter, and he's addressing this one issue, but in the midst of that letter addressing this one issue, he's going to give us some incredible advice about how to deal with people who don't want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And they might not even like you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. How do you love that kind of person? Um, so the last words before Jesus leaves are some of the last words he commits them. And this is called, you, you see this on the screen behind me, a lot of you know this as the Great Commission, right? This is Jesus giving the disciples and really the rest of us our marching orders until he returns. Here's our job, so to speak, our job description. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I just want you to focus real just short amount of time here on make disciples. Really, that making somebody, it, it's the word that we chose, but it, it has a bit of a coercive feel to it. I'm going to make you. And really, the word is used. You don't need to know the Greek word. I can't even pronounce it. But really, the idea is I'm going to cause you to become... I'm going to cause you to become. Go and cause people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you cause people to become a follower of Jesus Christ? How do you cause people to do that? Throughout the, the Bible, there's one word that keeps coming up over and over again. Love people, love people, love people, love people. They will, you will, you will win. I'm going to come back to that word. You're, you will win them over. Now, the Great Commission. So, that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. They went out and they began to make disciples. They began to cause people to become disciples. And the, the Christian faith grew rapidly. For the first 300 years, it was like wildfire, right? Things went fairly well. Now, let me, let me, okay, backtrack just a hair. There were lots of persecution. We looked at the Roman emperors. There was, but what we find out later is that persecution actually led to the growth of the church, right? Because when you get kicked out of the pool, you got to go find another pool, right? And then that pool gets saved, right? So that's kind of what happened. Every time we got a party going, we get kicked out of the pool. Well, let's take it to somebody else's house, and then they get saved. So the persecution was not a wasn't a great thing, but good things happened out of it. Romans 8, 28, right? God will make something good happen out of the crazy stuff that happens. The crazy decision that you all make, if you know and trust me, I'll figure something out. Romans 8, 28, Jerry's paraphrase right there. You mess it up, you trust me, I'll fix it. All right. Again, things went really, really well for a long time, but then something happened. Around 300, a little after that, give or take a couple years. 
Christianity became legal. It was persecuted. And if you look at the Christian growth around the world, you will quickly find out that where it is persecuted, it grows, and where it becomes easy street, it shrinks. The weirdest thing, the weirdest thing. Wherever there's trouble, the gospel grows, and wherever there's peace and everything's cool, it actually kind of goes away. Craziest thing. First of all, it became legal, and then it became official. And we're all thinking, yay, yay, but not so much, because then it became compulsory. It became mandatory. Either you believed exactly as we tell you to believe, or we will hurt you and your family. <laughs> we will hurt you a lot. We'll kill you if you don't agree with what we believe. And again, I'm going to say this over and over again this morning. Anytime the church leverages anything but love, it goes backwards, not forward. And you all have seen the church, 2,000 years of the church leveraging things other than love. And what did it do? It went backwards. We got a big old black eye. People are still making fun of us. Yeah, you idiots. <laughs> yeah, that was us. That was us. We leveraged something other than love. We leveraged, we leveraged power. We leveraged control. We leveraged things other than love. They no longer cared about leveraging love. And the Great Commission began to sound like this. Therefore, go and impose my teachings and values and worldview on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't obey everything I have commanded you. That's kind of what it became, right? We knew the right words, but in our actions, this is what we were screaming. You know, we'd all go to church and quietly repeat it correctly, but then we go out in the world and this is what they heard. This is the message of a group of people in power, in control. And for the Christian faith, that's a dangerous place, a precarious place to be. We'll say it that way. But this was not the message of Jesus, and this was not the message of the New Testament. This was not the message that turned the Roman Empire upside down for that first 300 years. Before it became official, before it became okay, before it became mandatory, the church exploded and grew up. Before any of that happened, it was It was love. It was love that made everything explosively grow. So Paul comes along and he wants to make Gentiles into followers of Jesus because he understands Matthew 28. He understands the Great Commission. He's all about it. That's his whole focus in life. So he's going to go, and the Jews have heard the message, so he's going to go and explain to all the Gentiles this incredible news about Jesus Christ. Now, this is important to understand. These people were not looking for a new religion. The Gentiles had a whole bunch of them that they were perfectly happy with. They had their own culture, which was radically different from the Jewish culture. Got to understand that. The Jewish culture was so different from the whole Hellenized or, or, or Greek Mediterranean world. I mean, you think about it. You're a Jewish person, and nakedness is, was almost, that was sin. That was sin. And you walk around your city, and you see in the gymnasium that people are competing naked. Right? And if you're a Jewish person, you're like, ah, my eyes are burned out. Ah! Right? So these two cultures, radically different cultures, so different these two cultures. Here's, here's, here's Paul's approach. He says, though I am in free, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. It says, though I am in free, I am free and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So he, he kind of goes on the next couple of verses to the Jews, I'm like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm like a Gentile. To those with the law, I am as one under the law. Those without the law, I'm as one who's not under the law. Um, to those who are weak, I'm, I'm weak. And he, he, he kind of basically says, I will be anything to any person. 
because my message is that important. I will leverage love. I will be a slave to you, all of you because love is the only way that this is always, this is, this is going to work. And that phrase to win, to, really to cause to become, you all understand what it means to win a contract or to how many of you won over your current spouse? You'd say you won them over. Would you raise your hand? You did not. I did. You, sit down. <laughs> so here's the deal. <laughs> Let's talk contracts first. Right? If you won a contract, you didn't mislead, you didn't lie, you didn't coerce, you didn't manipulate. You made your contract so good that the person deciding looked at you and said, you won me. You, you won. You won my contract. You, you won it, right? Because you made that contract better than all the other options. I made Diane, right? So I made myself better than all the other options. I won her. She wanted nothing to do with me at the beginning. Her friend said, stay away from that idiot. My friend said, what are you doing with Nancy Nazarene? You're not, you're one of the, okay, so I won her, well, we'll talk later, okay? But, <laughs> but y'all know what it means to win somebody. It's not with force, it's not coercion, it's not guilting, it's not any of those. You don't win people by doing those kind of things. You win people by being winsome and loving then they, they just want to hang out with you. They, they just want to be with you. You don't win over anybody by threats and coercion. Remember, that's how everything went backwards. Maybe you know somebody. Somebody leveraged something other than love in their faith walk, and they said, see you later. Because anytime the church leverages anything but love, it goes backward, not forward. So Paul starts with a bunch of churches. He's writing them letters, encouraging them, you know, instructing them, admonishing them, right? This is how Jesus said to do it, right? And, and they're all, all the churches, they're, again, they're, they're part of culture so radically different than the Jewish culture and the Christian faith that grew out of this Christian culture. See, you guys, most of you, I, I'm going to guess wildly here, most of you came to faith in a culture steeped in that same faith, Right? Your step into faith wasn't that radical because you could already name 40, 50, 60 people who you knew that went to church and were Christians. So you kind of, it was an easy start, right? But, but, but Paul, they're going into these cultures where they're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. You mean I can't sell my kid, my unruly kid? You mean I can't just put my wife out because she burned my toast? Wait, 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 wait a minute. You're crazy, right? You mean I can't? You mean I, I, I can't? No, 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 you can't. You shouldn't. And so Paul's going in, and again, and he's starting these churches, and, and it's taking them some time, right? It's taking them some time to figure out this whole thing, all these things that they're not supposed to do. And it's not like they're taking joy away from them. Paul's making it clear to them, you're actually hurting each other. You're destroying each other. Stop it. Stop it. So Jesus says, hey, do this, and you'll stop destroying each other. So again, he writes a letter to his possibly his most troublesome church. This is Corinth. So if you can imagine um, Las Vegas, taking Las Vegas into that, that, that hell-bound state called California and placing it right down into San Francisco. All right? So you got Las Vegas in the middle of San Francisco in the middle of California, right? Somebody just whacked that thing with a mallet and let it fall off into the ocean. And it's just all going to hell anyway. I thought I'd get some amens out of you crazy people. Come on. 
so hard to figure you guys out. I heard that. So in the midst of this rebuke, Paul explains the relationship that Jesus' followers should have with those who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. And again, right, even pagans. This is even and we can't even do that in our culture, right? We would have to go to like almost another country to see something so like, <clears throat> like we could go to Appalachia. You know, I'm not sure, but we'd have to go away from home to figure out what would be, what is it that even the pagans, even the pagans don't do this kind of thing. And so now you're all wondering, what in the world could be that bad? Right here, verse 2, a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. Now, let's just back it up a step. He's not sleeping with his mom as far as we can figure this out because it would have said he's sleeping with his mom. More than likely, the mom, his mom died, dad remarried, and, uh, you know, you get the impression it's not like he was up one night and she was brushing her teeth in a thin night robe or something, right? It's an ongoing kind of thing. And this, this is the impression that he's actually having an affair with his father's new wife, not even, and Paul, Paul's like, oh, not even the pagans do that. That's, oh, that's just the, the height of, oh, right? Full-blown public affair. And again, this isn't like our church, right? We got a fairly decent-sized church. You can sneak in, sneak out, sit on the back row, and I don't have no idea what's going on in your life. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to know. Um, but in a big church, you can hide a lot. But this, this is a little neighborhood home church, right? All the kids played together. All the kids went to school together. Right? They all played video games together. I mean, they, you, you knew it. And so, again, you can imagine they're all sitting down having a little Bible study, knee to knee around, and like, oh, he's, he's here. Somebody say something. And nobody has said anything, and they keep meeting, and he keeps showing up. And everybody knows about it because it's only three houses down, right? Because it's like everybody knows. Nothing, nothing, nothing is hidden. Nobody has said a word. And, and again, to be sure, it's not like they're proud. This, is, this can be a little bit misleading. They're not proud. Hey, 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 look at that. We got a member who sleeps with his mom. Oh, hey. That, that's not really what's going on here. It's, it's, it's like, Paul, Paul, look at us. We are so loving. You'll be so proud of us. We even let somebody sleep with his mom be a part of us. You said that they would know us by the way we love each other. We love each other. <laughs> Inappropriate, but we love each other. And like they're expecting Paul to go, good job, good job, good job. Because they're so loving and they're non-judgmental. <laughs> Paul thinks otherwise. He corrects them. He says this, verse 2, he says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out your fel- and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And immediately somebody's got to raise their hand and say, well, what about the girl? Are they only gonna, is, is the man the only one that counts? More than likely, the woman, if she was a part of this congregation, she would have already been booted. Possibly she would have already been had rocks thrown at her and stoned to death. The guy it never happens to him. It always happened to the girl. That's men in charge, by the way. Sidetrack, sidetrack, not going there. So the woman, more than likely, not a part of the congregation. Um, again, Shocked as he was at the sin, Paul was even more shocked at the attitude of the Christian church, the Corinthians church. 
What was going on there didn't shock him, the fact that they thought it was okay and they could overlook it and they could be complacent about sin. That shocked, that shocked Paul. They should have been grief-stricken. And again, absolutely crucial in understanding Paul and understanding what Paul's trying to do here. It's not a question of being critical and condemnatory at all. It's really a question of being wounded and shocked. That's Paul's feeling. He's not condemning them. He's not making you know, none of that kind of stuff. What he, he, he's shocked and he's wounded, really, that this church would so dishonor the name of Christ who died so that people would be free from this kind of stuff. And now you're just flaunting it. You're flaunting it. One man said, um, probably our best defense against sin is to make sure that we remain shocked by it. See, we have a tendency to get complacent, and it's like the frog in the kettle. Yeah, I don't know where that one went, but yeah. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. Right? So he's, that's why he's writing the letter. And I'll just tell you right now, this is why he got in trouble. This is the whole point, because you all know that when you text something or send an email, what, what, what can happen? A little misunderstanding, Right? Is that, you send an emoji, oh, sure, they'll understand what that emoji meant, and suddenly they're not talking to you anymore. Like, what? Well, that helps too. But more than anything else is when you put something in writing, it, it, you're open to misinterpretation, and that's exactly what happened in this situation. Paul had written a previous letter that we no longer have. This is 1 Corinthians, and in it you're going to hear in my previous letter. So <laughs> we're, missing, we're missing a couple of his letters probably. Um, but, but it, it might, we'll, we'll let it unfold. He continues. Uh, verse 3. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this, to which the Corinthians, listening to the letter being read in their congregation, probably would have raised their hand and said, Paul, haven't you heard the Bible says what? Help me out. Do not judge. Paul, come on, come on. Paul, don't you read your Bible? To which Paul responds to the Corinthians, I'm writing the Bible. <laughs> so be quiet. <laughs> You're going to see this in your Bible just a few years from now. So just pipe down for just a moment. Let me finish what I'm talking about. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us not to judge. It actually tells us who to judge. That's the amazing thing. A lot of people, right, yeah, you can't judge, but, but actually we are called to judge, and we're going to find out who we're called to judge in just a moment. So Paul says that I haven't, seen, haven't even seen the guy, but if what you say is true, if what you say is true, read verse 4, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present also, in other words, if somebody took your seat this morning, this is not a reason to kick them out of church. <laughs> Like a lot of people, pastor, <laughs> this person said something about me. Kick them out. Eh, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. So, so what, what Paul's saying is, look, this action that is about to happen is reserved for really, really, really bad stuff, right? So if somebody gives you a nasty look, no, I'm not going to kick them out of the body when we leave, okay? So everyone just, just settle down just a little bit. Right? So, uh, this whole thing has to be taken serious. It's not a fickle kind of thing. But when the case is serious enough, what basically Paul is saying to this church, and this is a beautiful thing, he says, listen, dude, man, whatever your name is, um, you can do that, but not here in this 
community. See, we have a different community going on here. We have a different set of morality. We have a different set of values and characteristics of our little group. Now, you can go out, out there in that world. You can do anything you want out there. You just can't do that stuff in here. I have no authority of you over you when you're out there, but when you were baptized, you basically submitted to this local body. I wouldn't have baptized you if this local body didn't feel like you were worthy. That's kind of the truth. The body, the local church, decides to accept you through baptism. I know people have a little bit of trouble with that, but that's the way it is. And you kind of signed on the line when you were baptized. You said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an effort. And apparently in this situation, somebody's just thumbing their nose at the whole effort. Oh, yeah, I was baptized. Oh, yeah, but I'm going to continue doing whatever I darn well please. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord is present, here, here, Paul passes judgment. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What a mixed message. Wow. First of all, the very beginning, hand this man over to Satan. Literally, um, the legal, this is a legal phrase, um, Satan is your new parole officer. <laughs> right? You got out of jail, um, here's your parole officer, Satan. <laughs> it's like, whoo, <laughs> Satan's my parole officer. Wow. <laughs> And for the destruction, of, so the destruction of his sinful habits. Listen, this is something we all know. This is something you know whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. Your actions have consequences. And when you do selfish actions, more than likely there are going to be dire consequences. As a Christian would say it, when you sin, there are consequences. And those consequences are, the Bible tells us, death. The death of relationships, the death of your career, death of your health, the death of a lot of things when you decide not to follow the commandments of God. Death enters your world. Sin has consequences. Basically, this line is saying, let him experience the real-life consequences of this thing that he thinks is so enthralling. He's very quickly going to find out <laughs> there's going to be a lot of people really angry with him. A lot of personal relationships are going to be destroyed. He'll come running back. Now, I know that sounds really crazy and wild, but I'll tell you just how true this is. I, Sunday school teacher, youth pastor, school teacher. And when I had that at-risk class, um, I had some pictures of my wife and kids. The vice principal came in and asked about the pictures, and immediately I started getting all defensive. Oh, you know, I'll take them down. I'm sorry. He says, no, 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 no. Jerry, you need to... And, and then he asked me, he says, do you talk about your family a lot? And again, I was like, ooh, I, I better lie. I, I felt like he was saying, you shouldn't be talking about your family. And I kind of hesitated, and he said, no, 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 Jerry, I need you to talk about your family all the time. These kids, they go home and they see one thing. They need to see that there's a different way of doing things. They need to know how you and your wife argue. They need to know that you don't beat your wife. Because that all they see at home is that. They have to know and become acquainted with a different way of doing things. And Jerry, talk about your family all the time. Uh, hopefully you have a healthy family. <laughs> if you do, talk about it all the time because these kids have to see that. And then added to that, a lot of youth will leave the church. They, and, and the pundits will say, oh, they're leaving their faith. The youth pastor did a horrible job. No, wrong. <laughs> That's so wrong. Here's what happens. At a certain age, we all do this. We do this several times in our life. We have to kind of step out of what was created for us by somebody else and decide, do I want that to be for me? So I know my mom and dad's faith, but I've got to step away from her and test it out on my own. And this is what would happen. The teens would leave the church, and the parents would come back to me and say, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Jerry, they're not going to church anymore. 
right? They're out there doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And I say, Mom, Dad, stop, stop, sit down, relax. I've seen this about a thousand times. Here's what's going to happen. But you need to keep praying. But here's what's probably going to happen. Because they were, and, and I heard them come back and they told me this. This is why I know it's true. When they were a part of my youth ministry, they knew love. They knew acceptance. They knew God's word. They knew beautiful. And then they went out on their own thinking that they could get more of that by getting away from the rules. And they thought, if I moved away from God, I could finally find life. And what they find? They found death. They found problems. They found horrendous. And then they, now this is the important part, they remember. Oh, I remember when I was in youth group and, and Jesus loved me. And right now, I don't feel it. They come back. They come back. They come back because they know there's something to come back to. They come back. So that's what Paul's saying. He says, look, send him out. Let him face his consequences. Let him find that the life he thinks that is away from God is, is actually death. He'll come running back. More than likely, somebody was sent to hang out with him because I did this in my youth ministry too. We had kids that were just out there. And so I would time them out. I would kick them out for a couple weeks. And I would say, I'm going to meet with you afternoons because I want you to come back, but I want you to know that that's not going to fly here. You can do that out there, but you're not going to do that in here. This is the kingdom of God in here. And so I would just boot them for a couple weeks and I'd tell mom and dad and Gave them a timeout. This is what I did. I, I, I gave them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, their evil desires, so that in the spirit they would be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's doing nothing but protecting his flock. Again, discipline is never vengeful. It's always curative, right? Then Paul addresses the confusion, right? Because they're saying, oh, I thought we were supposed to be loving. Why are you all mad at us? I mean, this is kind of his fault. Again, in the previous letter, in doing so, he provides a way to treat outsiders. Listen to this. It says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. We don't have that letter. This is 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you in that letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay? He continues, not at all meaning <laughs> the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Right? Now, I know some of you go to your family reunions, right? And you're thinking, why am I here? These are the creepiest, craziest people in the world. This has got to be affecting my witness. It's got to. I, mean, I, I got to sneak out of here. Or you go to your, like, work parties at Christmas, and you think, I shouldn't be here. To which Paul would say, yes, you should. <laughs> How are you going to save the world by pulling yourself out of the world? How are you going to give them my message if you don't rub shoulders with them? I don't want you to buy into their whole way of life. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but... but I, you, not, you need to be not of the world, but I need you to be in the world, right? Don't disengage from the people that need the good news. But, verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. That's actually what I meant to say. But I got tired of typing on my iPhone, and I, just, you know, I didn't have enough characters, and I tweeted, and I ran to 141 or whatever the issue was. This is what I meant to say, who claims to be a brother or sister. And he continues, don't even have coffee with these people. Don't have anything to do with these people who have been baptized and who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, and then you find out secretly they're doing that. Maybe not even so secretly. They're doing that. Notice the language again, brother and sister. 
right? You're supposed to hold each other accountable. Family holds family accountable. You all learned this when you were little. I know I did. Mom, Jerry's, mom, Jerry's. Like it just went on and on and on because I was never doing the right thing and Jerry did this, Jerry did that, right? Family holds family accountable, right? And, and, and again, you, you could go to somebody's house down the street, right? You could go to your friend's house, and you'd say to mom, hey, but I'm allowed to do this at grandma's house. Well, not in our house. I'm allowed to do this at mom-in-law's house. Uh, mom-in-law is probably a bad example for this particular sermon. I'm allowed to do that at my friend's house. Me personally, I never told my mom the rules at my friend's house or else I wasn't allowed to go there. That's really not a Christian message. Don't say amen. Just <laughs> Then he lands the plane. What business is it business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Answer, it's none of your business. <laughs> what business is it of yours? What somebody does or doesn't do who hasn't committed their lives to Christ? That's none of your business. Now listen, I'm not talking about civil rights, constitutional rights, anything like that. That's kind of our business. It needs to be our business. Christians need to stand up and protect those who can't protect themselves, to be the voice for people who don't have a voice. I mean, we need to do all those kind of things, but that's really, really not what they're talking about here. We're talking about as a follower of Jesus Christ, our influence is basically, hey, here's the way I treat my wife. Here's the way I treat my kids. Here's the way I treat my business associates. Here's the way I treat my money. Not you are condemned because you're not doing it the way I'm doing it. It's just that we provide good examples provide good examples. The problem is many people left the church before ever joining it, right? Because the church judged me on things that I hadn't signed on to be judged. I started hanging out with y'all, but then y'all started like coming down on me and telling me all these rules I'm violating. I ain't never even heard of any of these rules and now everybody's mad at me. I'm out of here. And the churches wonder, why won't anybody stay? You're friendly to each other, but you're not very friendly to the person who comes in and doesn't look all put together. I'm not saying you, I'm saying Christians in general. We have a nasty habit of doing that because we look so nice on Sunday. What would happen when the church leverages anything but love? Things go backwards. Paul continues, he concludes, God will judge those outside the church. Remember I said the Bible doesn't tell us not to judge, it tells us who to judge. Right there's your answer. See, the problem with Christians is we get it backwards. We do a great job. We police those not agreeing to be policed, and we don't police those agreeing to be policed. That's, that's the issue that people have with the church, right? You're bagging on us all the time, but look at yourselves. Look in a mirror. I know what you do on the weekends. I've seen you down so forth. I blah, 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 blah. We as Christians, we tend to police them. We don't do a very good job of policing ourselves. Paul says it's got to be the other way around. Police those who are chosen to be policed. Four of you, you chose to be policed, by the way. Thank you very much. Four of you, members of the church. Leave everyone else alone, right? They're not accountable to you or your standard of morality. They're accountable to God, not you. God will judge those outside. All right, now let me land the plane here. Don't, don't, oh, oh right there it is. This is the theological summation of the entire message. This is what you can go home with and say this is Jerry's paraphrase of like a whole bunch of scripture that he went on and on about at church today. Uh, judge the believing, not the heathen. And when we get it right, people won't feel conversed, coerced. 
They won't, they won't feel like we tricked them. They're going to feel drawn. They're going to feel like we won them over. The way you watch, the way you treat your wife and kids, the way you treat your money and so forth. If we do it right, they're going to feel challenged and, and, and maybe they're going to feel guilty, but they're not going to feel condemned. Jesus had a way of making people just understanding and being okay with the fact that they're a mess, but that he was going to help them clean it up. They, 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 like, they like, yes, somebody's honest with me. I knew it all along that I was a mess. And he's so winsome the way he talked with me. He wasn't angry with me. He wasn't accusatory, condemnatory, none of that. Just, just golly, just, just loving. Can you imagine, just for a moment, we're going to close with this. Can you imagine, just let your mind wonder, where the world would be today if we, the church, had decided not to leverage things other than love? Can you imagine all the dumb stuff that Christians have done? Just take it all away. What, where would we be? I think the better question for us this morning is where can we be if we decide from this day forward that we will leverage nothing but love? We will leverage nothing but love. We will not force to be right. We'll choose to be holy. That will be an amazing thing. Next week... We have a great plan for you next week. We're going to be celebrating God's blessings. It's going to be the annual church meeting, church address. It's not something that you want to miss. We're going to celebrate with our new, new believers. We're going to celebrate with uh, the officers that we're going to elect here in just a little bit. We're going to identify them. You guys are going to pray over them. Um, our officers that are leaving their offices um, this month, this is the last month of the calendar year, they're going to be sharing next year all of the ways that God has been blessing the areas that they have had oversight over, this is not going to be a day that you want to miss. Definitely next week is just going to be celebrating Richland Church of the Nazarene and what we've been about, what God has been about, and where we're headed. So next week, powerful, powerful, powerful. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much that you gave your life for Richland Church of the Nazarene, uh, and you call us to put our lives on the altar living sacrifices, die to ourselves. Father, help us to be more like your son um, who died to himself in order to give us life. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.